This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And I'm very pleased now to welcome Rennie Edo Lodge to the studio. Rennie is an award-winning London-based freelance journalist who is best known for her work writing about matters related to feminism and race. Her writing has appeared across a vast range of publications and she's been listed by The Guardian as one of the 30 most exciting people under 30 in digital media. She's also been listed as one of ALD's 100 inspirational women and The Root's 30 black viral voices under 30. On top of all that, she's recently put out her debut book entitled Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, an expansive and original work that examines the structural racism that still permeates life, particularly in the UK. Rennie is here in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers' Festival, and we're so thrilled that she's taken time out of her busy schedule to stop by Triple R. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. Hello. And uh, <laughs> firstly, congratulations on the book. You managed to pack an awful lot into the, uh, I think, 240-odd pages. But I do want to start probably in the most uh, logical place. This book was inspired by a blog post you published in 2014, which shares the same title as your book. It's a very honest and, uh, if I may say, frustrated account of why white people are not getting the message about the experience of people of colour in the UK. What were the specific circumstances back in 2014 that led you to publish that post? Well, let's just say that it wasn't for want of trying, okay? It was not like me waking up one day and being like, oh, I've had enough of white people today. No, it was actually um, after a period of time in which I was basically banging my head against a brick wall. So I was involved in sort of like left and progressive circles, feminist circles, ostensibly amongst people who consider themselves to be wanting to change the world uh, for the better. Um, And in these circles, attempting to engage in any sort of dialogue about race or perhaps question the white dominance of those circles was just like you were not supposed to go there because it would it'd be like walking on eggshells and um they would explode they become very angry they become very upset very defensive so I tried doing that for a while and um I was like being an activist and I was also blogging along the along that time and and uh, my writing was being read a lot and then I started to be invited into like lots of like British media spaces in which to discuss race, which was honestly just a total disaster. And about a month before I wrote that first blog post, I ended up on a very like establishment um, radio program, BBC Women's Hour on Radio 4. Um, and uh, I was, again, the only black person on the panel being asked to explain why racism exists or why anyone should bother about it anyway Mm. because that's always how the conversation goes why should we care about this and when I finished talking a white woman on the panel said yeah this is really important but also people have been using that perspective to bully me online and we really need to talk about that so I left the studio and um lots of people seem to agree with her Mm. uh by the end of the day a former conservative MP uh Louise Mensch may have heard of her she's turned into an internet troll now but um (laughs) she uh was saying yeah Rennie you are the bully in fact you are the bully and you're trying to silence people Mm. and about a month later um I wrote the opening essay to the book why I'm no longer talking to white people about race because I was literally emotionally exhausted of trying to have this conversation and deal with denial, derailing, whitewashing, ahistorical perspectives, um, willful ignorance from white people in which repeatedly again and again and again they attempted to try and tell me it was all in my head, racism didn't exist, um, while, you know, the denial of racism is a kind of racism in itself and um, 
I had to just step away from that conversation. And, and of course, you know, it was a temporary step away because here I am, I've written the book, I'm talking about it now to many white people. Including myself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but I had to step away in order to change that agenda, mm. to change that agenda. To The aim was really to contextualise those conversations that we're having. Um, and that is what led to that initial post. It was many fruitless conversations with many belligerent white people. Mm. And these belligerent white people are not necessarily people who are on the extreme kind of racist end of the spectrum in, mm. in, in terms that people might commonly understand, but mm. progressives, people who self-identify as progressives in a range of different ways. What is it about those types of people that uh, they so struggle to understand where you're coming from when mm. you speak about race, do you think? I don't really understand what it is with the white feminists because they can sort of conceptualise patriarchy as a um, dominant ideology that um, works in the favour of men uh, and in turn holds back women's potential but they couldn't understand whiteness as a dominant ideology which uh, works in the favour of white people and in turn uh, holds back people of colour so I think it's um, they were so like set in their ways of thinking I am marginalised in this way um, that they couldn't understand how they might benefit from the system in another way you know because mm. nothing's cut and dry here you know um, those of us, you know, I even rec recognise in the book that parts of the reason why I have got a book deal and I'm able to write this work and do this stuff is because I, I speak much like the people I'm criticising, you know, in the UK. Um, and I'm university educated and I'm able-bodied. Like, let's be real. Like, so I recognise that I have many... The system works for my benefit in many ways, even though the system also maligns me in different ways. But my understanding was that a very, like, narrow gender like pers gender perspective of feminism was not accommodating to that perspective in any way um and also i think that more broadly people with progressive politics but but people in general let's say our dominant ideology um encourage us encourages us to believe that meritocracy is already here rather than it's something that we work towards and so if you believe that meritocracy is already here then you're going to be just very resistant to any analysis of inequality that suggests that we actually don't all start from the same starting place mm. and that it isn't a level playing ground. And that's what I found repeatedly, I would say, from people across a political spectrum. I think when I'm talking about white people here, I'm not necessarily talking about people who are white. I'm talking about a dominant ideology on race um, that anybody can buy into unless you are actively critical of it, right? So I also know many people of colour who you know, have a bit of a problem with my work because they feel like by pointing out the existing inequalities, I am somehow making it so. Um, but all I'm doing is saying, look, this exists here, here, here and here. Like, we should probably be critical of it and take it into account when we are moving forward and continuing to shape the world. Mm. Um, at no point am I suggesting that if you are not white, you can't succeed. Neither am I saying that if you are white, you absolutely will succeed. I'm just looking at the odds here. And the odds are pretty bad if you're not white. That's just the case. Well, and you've done the research. This mm. isn't an opinion that you hold. This is based on facts and based on extensive research that you document in the mm. book. I mean, first and foremost, I am a journalist. And so it is my tendency to look at the big data of, of the picture that we're dealing with before I then delve into it with, with any of my own theory in any way, shape or form. And, you know, a lot of my research is UK based, but during my time in Australia, I've spoken to many people, including one woman from an indigenous rights organisation who told me that um, there are clear parallels here. So, um, you know, I know that in the UK, a black boy is three times as likely as his white counterparts to be excluded from school. When it comes to year six, taking the exams to take you into secondary school, um, 
black children are much more likely to be marked down by their own teachers, um, regardless of what the race of their teachers are. And that's something that's actually rectified when external examiners look at their papers. They get higher grades from people who don't know them as um, pupils. Mm. When it comes into... um, Getting into university, um, children of colour are much less likely to get into the country's top institutions. And um, when it comes to the employment market, you know, going out and looking for a job, people with African and Asian sounding names alongside their uh, counterparts with white British sounding names, even if all of them, all of them have like similar qualifications and experience, um, people with African and Asian sounding names are just far less likely to um, be called to interview than people with white British sounding names. And that's what I'm really talking about when I'm talking about structural racism. I'm talking about how the bias is reproduced and is inherent in the system repeatedly over and over again. And what I'm not saying in, when I point out any of those statistics, which, by the way, come from like government organisations, not hugely biased um, campaigning organisations mm. in any way, shape or form, is that what I'm not saying is that British teaching has been infiltrated by the KKK or, or, you know, every employer is a Nazi. No, what I'm saying is that clearly there's a dominant ideology here that some of us, that many people might even be reproducing unconsciously. We're certainly not critical of it and we have to be critical of it if we're interested in any sort of equitable future in which everybody has a chance if we're actually interested in working towards meritocracy. Mm. And that's about, I I think, as you do in the book, reframing what we understand by racism because Mm. people do often see it as the kind of the far right fringe. But um, you, uh, you know, rightly point out that racism is uh, discrimination plus power, which Mm. is why it's so harshly felt by people of colour in our community when there's a white dominant um, kind of social system that that they are living within. But but it's, it's difficult for white progressive types to come at that, isn't it? To accept mm. that some of the assumptions they may hold, some of the, the ideals that they espouse may be coming from a racist position, even though it's not the racism that they might identify as being overtly racist. Mm. I think it's deeply, uh, profoundly, life-changingly upsetting for white people to come to that realisation. Like it is a utter shattering of everything that they know to be true. Um, it is um, uh, fundamental upturning of their understanding of objectivity it can be very upsetting mm. that's why a lot of them don't really want to do it <laughs> don't want to don't want to come to that conclusion right or mm. would rather argue against it rather than um understand that that is a position that many of us are working from like i'm not saying i you know left the womb with a critical anti-racist position you know i talk about you know being four years old and turning to mom and asking her after you know consuming plenty of children's TV. I asked my mum, when am I going to turn white? Because Mm. my understanding at that point was that whiteness was humanity because all the baddies were not white, right? So I've learned to be critical of this dominant ideology too. You know, it's not... It's something that we all have to sort of be aware of and constantly critical of. Um, And I think sometimes for some people, uh, being aware of that, it feels is equated with ceding your position or giving up or losing. When It's not really about winners or losers here. It's a, because we are all affected by how race equals power in our society. And I think we all win if we work to dismantle it. 
If you're just tuned in, we are speaking with Rennie Edo-Lodge all about her new book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And it's interesting that you raise some parallels between uh, society in the UK and here, because as I was reading your book during the week, um, I was kind of uh, distracted by uh, what happened on Q&A, which is a panel program on Australian television on, on ABC that happens uh, every Monday night. And there was a, um, a, a question about the changing the date of Australia Day, which is January 26. It's been kind of... Um, back in in public debate uh, again it seems to come up every year around January but it mm. is again at this time of the year because two councils have decided to not uh, acknowledge that date as Australia Day because it's uh, offensive to the vast majority of the mm. Indigenous population and I mean I was just kind of thinking about how far we have to go as a nation and I wonder in your brief time you've spent here in Australia I know you've been speaking to people such as Maxine Benneba-Clark I saw mm. on your on your uh, Twitter feed um, whether you see uh, uh, you know, th- those really distinct parallels between where each of our countries are at in terms of comprehending mm. our, our history and, and the, the system of white power that perpetuates our society. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, even asking to change a day is too conciliatory a position. I think you should just get rid of the day, get rid of it. I, I would even go, I don't, I think offensive is not the word to suggest what January the 26th um, signifies, which uh, is uh, the the start of an attempt at genocide like mm. let's be real any any white politician who stands up and says you know we should be proud of that history is basically endorsing genocide like or at least an attempt at it um and i don't think it is uh ceding their position for a white politician to recognize that you know i noticed that one of your politicians said oh well taking down statues or changing dates is editing history but the white version of history is an edit. Let's be real. Like there were people here <laughs> before white people turned up. Like, and uh, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that. And any attempt to celebrate that day uncritically is a whitewash and an edit of history. Right. So part of being looking back, like I'm quite anti-nostalgia. Actually, I feel like it's very. Um, I think it's a it's a facet of conservatism to look back on the past with rose-tinted glasses. Like, I'm somebody who's quite interested in, like, looking at the past going, okay, that's what happened there. Like, how are we interested in the future being better? Like, that's what, that's what I'm quite interested in. Mm. And, I, and I'm noticing that some of the discussion here is very much like looking back on the past with rose-tinted glasses, which, you know, the whole, like, the past is gone, let's look to the future. Um, I feel quite, it's quite dismaying, I think, to see um, that, again, willful ignorance, whitewashing, uh, and, and a very ahistorical stance on on what that date means. Um, so, yeah, I think that change the date is too nice an ask, actually. I say get rid of it. I mm. can say that, though, because I'm not Australian, so. <laughs> <laughs> you can say anything on Triple R. <laughs> but it, it's also, um, I think, really highlights the types of uh, white sensitivities that, that come up whenever... Um, you know, a particular version of history is questioned by, um, you know, people like yourself or, mm. or by people, um, you know, such as Dan Sultan on Q&A last Monday night, that there's this kind of knee-jerk reaction to hold on to that white history, to that myth of our history, mm. um, because they feel it might be threatened in some way by uh, fully uncovering the truth. Mm. I mean... I, I have an interview in the book with a white person who I would consider to be a critical, critical anti-racist. One of the things I ask her is, you know, I ask her about her journey towards becoming much more critical about racial power structures in our society. And I ask her, what did you feel that you had to lose during that time in your life when you were defensive? What did you have to lose? Because in my experience, sometimes speaking to white people 
and dealing with that defensiveness and that denial. It's like they're very, very scared of losing something, but I'm not quite sure what. It's quite nebulous what, what they're worried about. And she said she was just worried. She was scared of being wrong. That was it. She's scared of being wrong. Mm. And I said, do you think you've lost anything? I asked her, do you think you've lost anything by becoming anti-racist, by thinking about these things? And she's like, no, honestly, I think I've gained so much. So the question is, I think, to white people, what do they have to lose by just accepting <laughs> that January the 26th attempted to start a genocide? Like, what do they have to lose? The world's not going to cave in. Like, mm. the building's not going to fall down. Just accept it and move on. Like, mm. I don't understand this, um, like, real dogged, like, belligerent need to, to defend half-truths. Mm. I don't understand it. Yeah, and, and a date that's only been a, a kind of a public holiday since 1994 as well. It doesn't mm -hmm. even go, go that far in, in terms of our history. But, I mean, as well as speaking to committed uh, anti-racists in your book, you also speak to Nick Griffin, the leader of the British National Party. Mm. And, um, I mean, you speak about the kind of um, anxiety or nervousness you had at giving him your phone number and, and engaging with someone who's espoused incredibly kind of uh, racist white nationalist views mm. in the past. And uh, engaging with someone like that, do you feel like you gained any kind of better understanding or, or enabled them to have a better understanding of, of your position and, and re-evaluate the way they feel about things? Because oh, no. it seems to me in his case, <laughs> I mean, he's very unlikely to change his tune. But um, but why did you feel that you, you wanted to engage with uh, Nick Griffin? So the, the point of the interview with him was not to convince or please understand my position. Oh, he's long gone. He's long gone in that respect. The point of his of that interview with him was, well, first, I wanted to absolutely contextualise it in, a, in an anti-racist space. But I think, secondly, a lot of the things that he, he was saying, you know, he was really at his political peak maybe 10, 15 years ago. A lot of the things he was saying then are very much part of our mainstream political discourse now. And I think it's important for readers to remember that, right? Like... He was absolutely on the fringe, maybe in 2008, when, you know, he went on, went on Britain's version of Q&A, you know, BBC Question Time. Like, he was very much on the fringe and roundly condemned. But, you know, I saw a lot of the things that he was saying back then being repeated in the campaign to leave the EU, being repeated uncritically. And I want people to remember where they, these politics come from. It comes from a white nationalist with links to white supremacists, right? Like... I, I talk about him in the chapter Fear of a Black Planet because he does have a fear of a black planet. He's obsessed with this idea of white genocide. He really believes that white people are going to be bred out of Britain by the year 2066, which, A, I, you know, even if that is the case, I don't see what the problem is, considering is that, like, white political power will continue to reproduce itself regardless of how many white people are actually in the country. Like, look at South Africa. So um, I don't see the actual issue with it there. But I want people to rem remind themselves where those politics come from and why they are so insidious and, and why we should push back on any attempt to, of populism to attempt to, like, broaden out those messages. You know, it's not a coincidence that we're seeing the rise of Nazis again. Mm. It absolutely isn't. Because if you continue to be uncritical of how racial power reproduces itself and you believe in this like weird notion of meritocracy which doesn't actually exist then it's quite easy I think for white people to start thinking them, themselves as the victims 
rather than the benefactors of racism. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, often people can assume that we're on kind of a, a progressive trajectory and that things are broadly getting better throughout mm. society. But, I mean, as the example in, in uh, recent history in the UK attests, there's been the servicing of very sort of ugly views and opinions that hadn't been broadly accepted previously, as is happening in the US, currently kind of encouraged by the presidency of Donald Trump. And even here in Australia, we've had don't say even here in Australia as if we don't have an incredibly racist history, but we had the resurfacing of a politician, Pauline Hanson, who came back into our Senate after everyone thought she was kind of long gone after she lost um, her parliamentary seat uh, over kind of a decade and a half ago. So these types of views have a new kind of currency. And I wonder where Mm. you see things being at in the UK post the Brexit vote and post the really, um, you know, nasty and, and racist nature of the campaign that was waged throughout that campaign, where where do we sit currently? Do you see hope that there is kind of progressive elements creeping into the UK following the election earlier this year, or are we still in a very sort of dark place over there? Gosh, hope. Do I have hope? What an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think that the conversation about race in, in the UK is um, moving forward to some extent, but... You know, the Brexiteers just have to stop going on like they're victim because they've won now. So, like, these people have this, like, constant victim mentality. And it's like, well, you've won now. So what more do you want? Like, now they're like, oh, well, we need to crack down on this, that, the other, get all the immigrants out. Like, that's how... Now they're angry because Brexit didn't happen the day after the vote when it's actually going to take quite some time to leave the EU. Mm. Um, I think what what my hope is 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 um, that the end of complacency from those of us who consider ourselves to be non-racist. I hope for the end of complacency. I hope that people start realising, wow, it's not just that things just progress without us trying. Like, oh, you know, it's modern day now, so we're just going to move forward. No, we all actually have to do something. We all have to actually act. Now, I, as an author, can't tell every single individual person how to act because that's simply not my job. I'm not a psychic, neither am I a politician. However, um, I hope that I can attempt to try and provide the framework for, our, for in which people can think critically about how they can act because we actually all have a role to play in order to move things forward Mm. and that sounds so boring and cliche to even have to say but unfortunately I feel like I have to keep saying it over and over and again because you know one one thing that I hear a lot um this year I think particularly after you know we had the horrible Grenfell Tower tragedy and in West London just recently it was just after the book came out actually and it utterly floored me was the words it's 2017 people sort of like cry out it's 2017 like why is this still happening why is this still happening and the answer is complacency it's because we believe that we're in the future now but instead we actually have to make the future mm. yeah and the Grenfell Tower situation I should remind listeners too that we're speaking with Rennie Edo Lodge all about her book why I'm no longer talking to white people about race Rennie's in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers Festival and just raising the Grenfell Tower situation um, I mean that's kind of a very practical example of the extent to which people from uh, you know racial minorities or minority communities living in London were very uh, you know physically and, and practically affected by mm by racism because they were, you know, the majority of people living in in that tower were very kind of low income Mm -hmm. um, and had asked repeatedly for that, that the the flaws in that tower to be addressed, yet it Mm. wasn't. And we all know what happened. Exactly. It was, and it was, I would think a real clear amalgamation of race and class discrimination and how, you know, we've got a long tradition of social housing in Britain and and we're, we're watching it be just, um, 
obliterated, chopped away. I, I used to be a social housing reporter. You probably picked that up in the book as well. Um, and and how uh, the ways in which those people's lives are safeguarded wasn't. You know, we saw basically working class people, immigrants, like working class white people, m- Muslims, all sorts of different people who when did not have a, a high stake in society and it was it was devastating to see really and you know i really push back on this phrasing of the white working class i mean i just used it to uh, clearly an a- adjective term to describe some of the people working in the living in that tower but in terms of the white working class as a political entity i push back on it strongly because you know i grew up in an extremely like multicultural city in london and my understanding of what the working class was was the residents of Grenfell Tower because those are the kind of people who I grew up with and I grew up around, you know, you know, Lebanese people and Somalians here and, you know, Edna next door with a cup of tea. Like, that is my understanding of what the working class is. And any, any um, suggestion that the only kind of working class people we need to be caring about as a political entity are white working class people as a group who have racial grievances. I think we should absolutely push back on it because the people who lived in Grenfell Tower, the people who died in Grenfell Tower is to me a just such a clear like cross-section of who the working class is in mm. Britain's biggest cities. And the fact that it was policies, um, it was negligence that killed those people more than any terror any terror attack in Britain that year is something that we have to we have to reckon with. Mm. Yeah, and that that sort of uh, idea of the white working class is one that hasn't only been capitalised on in the UK either. It's been mm. used in in the US with with Trump's presidency and also in Australia. I'm sure politicians are looking very carefully at um, their focus groups and so on about this kind of elusive white working class bloc who apparently decide the mm. result of elections and and the idea that you have to pander to their racial grievances to mm. um, to win their votes is is quite an alarming one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's an element of like ventriloquizing happening there, you know, in terms of, I think in my time as a journalist, seeing who occupies our newsrooms is very white, it's very middle class. And I think that there is, uh, that those people then go to deprived places and look for the most racist person they can find to get a vox pop from. There's some ventriloquizing there happening, undoubtedly. Mm. And I want to return uh, briefly. We are starting to run out of time, but to the point you were talking about earlier in terms of, um, you know, whether or not you have hope about where where the UK is currently at and how we can move things forward and what, I guess, your book may contribute to in those terms. And... Um, Towards the end of the book, you speak um, kind of critically about people asking you whether there's an end point to this, whether there's such a thing as a post-racial society, which some were suggesting there was when Barack Obama was elected, for example. Um, mm. We all know that wasn't the case. Um, but you, I mean, you, you really invite and encourage self-reflection for, for people who might identify as progressives. And even the idea of performing anti-racism I found to be a really interesting one because you see on social media friends jumping on board with a particular campaign and you raise mm. the example of of one in the aftermath of the terror attacks in, in Paris that people were suddenly posting about attacks that happened in Kenya many months previously but suddenly people were suggesting that they had this kind of, uh, you know, moral something something over everybody else because they were suddenly thinking about what was happening in Kenya. And we mm. see this played out on social media all the time, but it's very easy to look like you're progressive, to look like you're showing solidarity with other other groups and other races. But 
that may be far from how people actually live their lives and the, mm. the, the, their willingness to have difficult conversations with their friends and colleagues about those very issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I wrote about in the book, somebody from the alt-right might call it virtue signalling, but I would never use that language because I'm not a member of the alt-right. <laughs> but I think that it was... Um, I think there's a bit of a tendency, particularly online, for us to move with, move with the crowd. So, like, if the crowd's talk about this, we'll talk about this whether it's Taylor Swift or, you know, um, Standing Rock. Everyone just wants to talk about what everybody else is talking about with not much critical thought, actually. And and I think that um, the, criti- the critical thought starts when you stop moving with the crowd, when you start sticking your neck out, when you do things that could be socially risky for you rather than co-signed, you know, with likes and hearts on Instagram. Like, that is... That is when the critical anti-racism starts and the sort of like herd mentality ends. And I'm, that might be a little controversial to say, you know, we all love social media. I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. But at the same time, um, I, I think that we have to be willing enough to stick your neck over the parapet. And that means, you know, another, another thing that I hate when a, when there's a terror attack like, like Paris is people going, oh, well this happened and the so-and-so news corporation didn't report on it. And it's like, yeah, they did. You just didn't pay attention to it in that respect. But now mm. everyone's tweeting about this. You want to say, oh, yeah, but this thing happened. It's just like, just talk about the thing when it happened because every tragedy is a char- tragedy in itself. And we don't have to use black lives to pig- piggyback on the death of white lives. Like, uh, yeah, it, it, it does bother me. I just wonder if that's a um, just a cause of social media in general. Well, it's certainly something that, that would, would further that, that problem, mm-hmm. I guess, the fact that people are always on, on social media and always reacting to things that, that, that people are saying and people are writing about. But, mm-hmm. um, I mean, your book is only um, newly published. Your blog post you wrote a number of years ago and uh, I imagine didn't expect for there to be such a strong response to it. It went, it went viral back then. Have mm-hmm. you been encouraged by the response to both your blog post and, and your book since it's been published? published? Um, it's been really nice to be here in Melbourne, actually, because I definitely have some readers who who live in Melbourne who have stuck with me since that blog post came out in 2014. So it's kind of thrilling to meet them. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that I definitely wasn't anticipating that response to the initial post, which was absolutely me dropping the mic. It was not an invitation for conversation in any way, shape or form. It was me saying, right, I am done. Thank you and goodbye. Um, and the response it basically drew me back in. Right? That's what the response did. Um, and in terms of the response to the book, I would say I've been pleasantly surprised. Uh, it's been overwhelmingly positive. And even people who have approached the book or, you know, there's this big extract in The Guardian when um, just before the book came out, um, about 4,000 words. So people who approached that as well, like with like who were very generally anti and felt that, the whole title and the cover was victimising white people, terrible and reverse racist. Like, people have got in contact to say, I thought all of those things and then I read the book and it's fundamentally changed my mind on how I'm thinking about those issues. And to me, I'm like, well done. Well done, me. I've done what I needed to do. That's literally (laughs) success. I don't care about sales. I don't care about anything else. Like, if somebody says to me, I I am second-guessing myself or... I feel a little humbled or I feel I'm questioning myself on this, then I feel like I've done what I set out to do, which was to to trouble everybody's assumptions on, on race, to really get under people's skin on this issue, you know, because 
I just think that we are we can be guilty of very lazy thinking on a number of different things, but on race especially. Um, and so I've been I've been really pleasantly surprised. I, I'm sure there has been some trolling, but uh, I don't know. I don't see. I I change all my settings, so I don't see trolling. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd recommend uh, the book to anyone. It's an absolutely uh, it's I mean a really enjoyable read. You write very well and very engagingly, and as Thank well you. as um, s- writing about your own experiences of, of racism in the UK, it's also very informative. And I certainly learnt a lot about the situation over there. Uh, Rennie Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, is out now through Bloomsbury. You can uh, get it through your local bookstore or of course online and Rennie is in Melbourne speaking at a range of events at the Melbourne Writers Festival and I need to ask um, before you leave I was looking at your website and saw that one of the things you like to do in London is to seek out good coffee places have you done so in Melbourne I've literally before before I came here everyone's like oh yeah the coffee's really really good like apparently like Melbourne's coffee scene like inspired (laughs) all the coffee scenes in London like everything and apparently a lot of Berlin's coffee scene as well so I've been to Dukes because that's near where I'm staying and and um, if you've got any other rep- recommendations, please tell me now because I have like a few more days here and I need to drink more coffee. So. We've got a coffee machine at Triple R that we can um, we can we can make you one in the uh, kitchen just after this. If you okay, like. excellent, excellent. We do a mean coffee here. All right, I'm not drinking any instant though. So <laughs> no way. I'm against instant. I'm opposed to it. Mm, me too. Okay. Thanks so much for your time. No worries. Thank you for having me. <laughs> And over the weekend, there was a breakthrough in that long-standing maritime boundary dispute between Australia and East Timor. The details are still confidential until they're finalised in The Hague uh, later this year or next month. Uh, And we spoke to Father Frank Brennan back in January about this issue. It was just after the East Timorese cancelled that CMATS treaty, which set out the division of revenue from the estimated $40 billion Greater Sunrise oil and gas fields, as well as fishing and other resource rights. Uh, Frank Brennan is Professor of Law at ACU and, and um, has been an advisor to the East Timorese government uh, over the years. And at that time in January, it was unclear if this issue could be resolved this year or not. But 18 years after East Timor got its independence from Indonesia, it looks like there has been a breakthrough here. And it's really great to have you back on Triple R. Great to be with you. Good morning to your listeners. Good morning. And um, and Frank, I remember when we spoke to you uh, in January this year, you um, were a little bit doubtful that we might come to an agreement such as this by September this year, which was when uh, both parties were saying we would hopefully um, you know, come to an agreement on this. Are you surprised that we have uh, had this announcement over the last few days? I am, and I give full congratulations to Julie Bishop, our Foreign Minister, and to Zizana Guzmao, the former Timorese president, and Agio Pereira, who's been the chief of the Council of Ministers of East Timor. I think those three together, they've made the chemistry work, they've come to the table in good faith, and they've reached a deal which, yes, back in January, I thought it was a very high-risk gamble by the Timorese to abandon CMATS and to go down this path, but it seems that they've reached a resolution with which they're happy, which I think is wonderful news. And so that CMATS uh, treaty, maybe remind us what that involved, because that was a, a sort of 50-50 stake and that, that maritime boundary yeah. wasn't particularly exactly in the middle of the two countries, was it? That's right. Well, what your listeners have to bear in mind is that the issue has been largely about a very large deposit of oil and gas in the Timor Sea called Greater Sunrise. Now, the Greater Sunrise deposit is found somewhere near the boundary 
of Australia and Timor jurisdiction. And until now, there's been no agreement as to what that maritime boundary is. Now, prior to CMATS in 2006, the division of the spoils of Greater Sunrise upstream was to be basically 18% to Timor and 82% to Australia because that's how it fell with what would have been the boundary if it had been drawn according to lines which had been previously used. Now, with CMATS, they basically did a deal and said, well, look, Let's not worry about drawing the boundary. Let's put that off for 50 years or so. And you've got to remember, Australia had an interest in wanting to put off negotiations because they didn't want to offend the Indonesians with whom Australia had done a very good deal and therefore a bad deal for Indonesia on boundaries years before. So in exchange for putting off the negotiations for 50 years, Australia had agreed to increase Timor's revenue share from 18% to 50%, but also to give Timor exclusive access to the fishing and other resources within the contested area. And so by abandoning CMATS, effectively, Timor was saying, oh, well, we'll go back to the old 18% share. We'll go back to the arrangement where we didn't have exclusive use of the fishing resources, but we'll try and commit ourselves now to the negotiation of a boundary. And it seems they've reached an agreement which is acceptable to both sides and they hope by October to finalise the maritime boundaries. So I think that's good news. Yeah, it was very much a, a gamble as, as you outlined, Frank. And so, I mean, obviously we don't have the details uh, yet on, on exactly what was agreed to as part of those negotiations <laughs> that were resolved. But would you expect that East Timor would have a, at least a 50% or greater share of those resources um, in that dis- previously disputed territory? I would confidently expect that Timor will get more than 50%. I say that because Timor's uh, situation, according to their legal advice from the leading international lawyers in London, was that they could make a claim even for the whole of Greater Sunrise coming within the Timor jurisdiction under revised boundaries. Now, it would seem that the Timorese have compromised on that, but in a way that's acceptable to them. I say that because the media release from the Permanent Court of Arbitration says two things. It says that Australia and Timor have reached agreement on the central elements of a maritime boundaries limitation. But then, very significantly, they say that there's been agreement to the establishment of a special regime for Greater Sunrise. Now, you'll appreciate, if Timor was to get the whole of Greater Sunrise within its jurisdiction, there'd be no need for negotiating any special arrangement with Australia about Greater Sunrise. So I can only presume, and it is a presumption, I don't know for sure, but I can only presume that under the compromise with the maritime boundary, that some of Greater Sunrise will still fall on the Australian side of the line, but that the special regime that's been agreed to is one which is agreeable to everyone, including Zanana Guzman. And I think that's great news. So the permanent, permanent court of arbitration in The Hague uh, will we'll find out in due course in October, I think, um, what that maritime boundary might be. 
via that process. Yeah. And it was interesting. I remember back in January when we spoke about this, it, you know, we spoke about it as a David and Goliath battle and that Australian yeah. public opinion was pretty much on the side of East Timor here. Uh, we do yeah. have that special relationship uh, with East Timor as a really near neighbour, but also in uh, Australia's role in their independence from Indonesia. And I wonder if that is part of why Australia's come, you know, the Australian government has come to this um, compromised position that they know that well, Australian people want a good deal for East Timor? It, it may be. I'm sure he wouldn't mind my saying publicly, but I heard from Azure Pereira, who's head of the Council of Ministers in Timor for, in recent years. Uh, he contacted me from Copenhagen on Saturday and described the very moving scene where the lawyer for Australia, at the end of her closing address, came up and embraced Zanana Guzmao, and together they agreed that this was a great day in the Timor-Australia relationship. Because you'll understand that for the Timorese, the breakthrough, as I understand, came on Wednesday night, Copenhagen time, which was the 30th of August, the 18th anniversary of the referendum in East Timor, the Timorese spilt their blood in order to exercise their democratic preference to be an independent nation and to shake off the shackles of colonialism of Indonesia. And so I think you can get from that a sense that Julie Bishop has played a constructive role, but also that Zanana Guzmao and Aju Pereira have been able to lead their people in a spirit of gracious compromise. And the other thing, as Pereira emphasised, was that what we've seen is now Australia and Timor sending a clear message while there are disputes in the South China Sea that the way to resolve these sorts of disputes is by coming to the table, negotiating in good faith and following the principles of international law. So I say full marks to Bishop and full marks to Guzmao. And now talking about anniversaries and to change topics a little bit, uh, um, we're speaking with uh, Father Frank Brennan about the Timor Maritime Boundary issue, but you let us know before I'm coming to air that today is also a really um, special date for you. The 4th of September 1977 was when you got your uh, great awakening politically. I, I wonder if you can kind of fill us in on that. Well, I know for some of your listeners, and particularly in Victoria, it would seem an eternity ago and a very long way away. But on the 4th of September, 1977, I'm a Queenslander, you'll appreciate, and we had a very colourful premier in those days, Sir Joe Bjelke-Peterson. And Sir Joe Bjelke-Peterson announced 40 years ago on this day that the day of the political street march is over. Don't bother applying for a permit. You won't get one. That's government policy now. Well, two months later, I was admitted as a barrister and I started researching this topic because it seemed to me that it was a gross abuse of the separation of powers and it was a gross abuse of rights. And so 40 years on, it's wonderful to go and revisit the things that were being said by Joe in Parliament at that time. And particularly given we're talking about Timor, I think it's delightful to note that Christian Porter, who's now Mr Turnbull's Minister for Social Services, his grandfather was in the Queensland Parliament at the time, and he was fond of asking Sir Joe Dorothy Dixer questions about the street march ban. And Sir Joe answered, the Communist Party is behind the anti-nuclear protests in Queensland, 
just as it is the driving force behind the campaign for an independent East Timor. And he went on to say that the rest of us were do-gooders and the gullible who were being hidden behind the Communist Party. Well, as a gullible do-gooder, I must say, now that East Timor has its independence 40 years on, it's wonderful to recount Sir Joe saying those things 40 years ago to this day. Well, we did hear a, a, a politician say recently accusing someone else of being a communist as well. So it's, you know, what go, some things improve and some things stay the same, I think. But it is interesting to reflect now on, um, you know, who's heading to the streets and what we're heading to the streets for. And of course, later this week, uh, the High Court, we hope, will rule on um, some of the cases before it for uh, the same-sex marriage um, postal survey that, uh, you know, might be coming our way. And I wonder, I mean, we're hearing so many different things. Things. Um, Frank Brennan, um, one of them, uh, you know, these kind of slippery slope arguments that if we allow same-sex marriage, uh, it is going to compromise uh, religious freedoms and the like. And I wonder uh, what your thoughts are with that. Um, I've heard you say that that we, we should wait for a yes vote and then have a look at the religious freedoms issues, that they're, they're quite separate. Uh, basically, I think the religious freedom questions are complex and I think they're difficult to resolve in Australia because, amongst other things, we don't have a Human Rights Act. So we don't have an Act of Parliament which sets out the limits on religious freedom. Normally, you'd expect to find that in something like a Human Rights Act. And so what we've had in Australia to date is that we've dealt with the right to freedom of religion, conscience and belief simply as if it were an exemption or exception to provisions in discrimination legislation, such as a Sex Discrimination Act. Now, back in 2009, I chaired the National Inquiry for the Right Government on Human Rights, and we recommended a Human Rights Act uh, precisely because we thought these sorts of rights were in need of better protection. Now, what we do know is that the Australian Law Reform Commission has acknowledged that there is a need to look at these exemptions and exceptions in discrimination legislation, wondering if that's the best way to protect religious freedom. And we also know that the Senate committee that looked at the same-sex marriage bill in February this year also said that there was a need for better scrutiny as to how to protect religious freedom. So my own view has been, uh, I've never been in favour of plebiscites or things of this sort in this regard, but given there is going to be a plebiscite or a survey or whatever, I say that the complexities of the protection of law or religious freedom are not best agitated during a very emotive plebiscite campaign. I think they're best dealt with through the parliamentary processes, looking at recommendations for law reform once there is, if and when, there is a yes vote by the public in a survey. And, I mean, you've you've um, said that you would, uh, as I understand, vote yes in, in such a postal survey, if indeed it does happen, following the High Court challenge this week and, and outlines uh, that um, marriage as a civil institution, which is what, um, you know, we're, we're talking about with the postal survey, is different from marriage as kind of recognised in, in the Catholic Church and so on. And, I mean, a, a couple of elite um, Catholic private schools have kind of cautiously um, thrown their weight behind um, the yes campaign or at least um, cautiously accepted uh, marriage equality. I wonder what your sense is of, of um, I mean, the church more broadly in Australia. Do you think there are many who are, are comfortable with marriage equality eventuating, um, you know, in the near future? Uh, I think in the Catholic Church, as in the community, generally, you get a broad plurality of views. 
And definitely, I mean, the public remarks I've made on this have been not to participate in a yes campaign or whatever, but simply to indicate that, yes, you know, I'm a Catholic, I'm also an Australian citizen, and for the last two to five years I've been writing a lot of stuff on this, indicating that basically I think the time has come in Australia for recognising same-sex marriage in the Commonwealth Marriage Act, but that there is a need for proper protection of religious freedoms. Now, you'll get a plurality of views. We've got some bishops in the Catholic Church who have teamed up with groups like the Australian Christian Lobby. They're campaigning for no. We've got other bishops who are saying, well, they'll vote no, but they're not campaigning. We've got other bishops who are not saying a position one way or another. So I'm simply one Catholic priest who in the public square has said, well, I'm not campaigning. But for those who want to know, yes, I will be voting yes. And for those who want to know, these are my reasons. And yes, one of the key reasons I have is drawing the distinction between marriage as a civil institution under the Commonwealth Marriage Act and marriage as a sacrament in the Catholic Church. As a contract under the Australian Marriage Act, it's a contract which can enter into by two parties. It can be terminated with one year's notice. And after the termination of the contract, you can enter into a contract third person and when you enter into the contract there's no requirement that you have an intention to bear and nurture each other's children now i'm not making moral judgments on any of that i'm just saying well that's very different from the sacramental notion of marriage in the catholic church so now the question is whether or not that civil institution should be changed further by permitting a contract between two persons of the same sex and on that I think there's room for a legitimate difference of opinion in the Australian community, as there is room for a legitimate difference of opinion by people who regard themselves as good Catholics. Thanks so much for talking with us. It's been a really broad-ranging conversation and um, we look forward to having you back on. uh, And um, we'll see what happens, what that uh, final maritime boundary is likely to be with the East Timor issue as well um, coming up in October. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks indeed. Uh, Thank you. Catch uh, up. Father Frank Brennan there speaking initially about the Timor Maritime Boundary issue, but um, going to some interesting dates and also contemporary discussion there about uh, uh, the marriage potential postal survey that we may or may not have uh, but we are seeing a lot of campaigning around already and uh, a lot of effort going into uh, the yes campaign but also the no campaign and we'll find out later this week whether we're going to have it or not. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au